Episode 25, Bonus Edition, Interview with James Sturdivant. Educators, is your passion tank running on empty? Look no further. Gretchen of Always a Lesson has a double dose of just what you need. Come fill yourself up with an empowering educators podcast to start your day feeling empowered. This is Gretchen from Always a Lesson here to empower you to reach your potential. In fact, I call you elite because only an elite educator would take time to invest in themselves by listening to a podcast like this to help hone their craft. Today is a special day because we have a guest appearance. I want to help you reignite your passion and potential by learning from another elite educator, James Sturdivant, or Jim as we all know him. He has got one empowering message to share with you today. But first, let me share a little bit about him. So James Sturdivant first stepped in front of his high school students in the late summer of 1985. He predicted he would teach only a year or two before pursuing something grown-up, as he calls it, like going to law school, getting a Ph.D., or just entering the private sector so he could earn a fortune. But a funny thing happened on the way to the forum. He fell in love with his students. He wondered to himself, could one really get paid for bonding with young people? And the answer to that was absolutely, and still is, some 30 years and thousands of students later. An education professor that was observing his class once said to him, Your students seem so relaxed and happy. How do you create this atmosphere? That was such a haunting question and really caught James off guard. So he gave a meager and vague response, but after much reflection and research, he was prepared to answer that question. Listen into the interview as he shares all that he has learned with us. But he is now teaching at Big Walnut High School in Sunbury, Ohio. He is married to Penny, who's a middle school principal. They have three children, Jason, David, and Maria, and one grandchild, Kaya. He also is an author and professional development presenter. In 2014, he published his book called You've Got to Connect, which you'll hear about more in the interview, and this is available on Amazon. He's also been featured in numerous publications. All right, so let's go ahead and dive into this interview. Well, hey, James, thanks for joining us on the Empowering Educators podcast. How are you? I'm doing great, Gretchen, and uh, one of my favorite things to do is to talk to fellow educators via Skype, which we're doing right now. I find it intoxicating. Thanks for the offer. Of course. Well, elite educators around the world are eager to learn from you today, so I'm just going to get right to it. Mm -hmm. Go ahead and explain to our listeners how our paths have crossed. I'm part of a, a really neat Voxer group. A Voxer is kind of like a global walkie-talkie system. <laughs> and, and these groups are the Talks with Teachers group. And um, it's really a neat group of people who share all kinds of ideas on how to be better educators. And uh, I'm like the crazy uncle in the basement. Of the <laughs> I, I, I come out of nowhere and, and say something along the lines of, hey, I really watched this great Star Trek episode today. 
And, I, and my role is to get everybody off topic. But I do think it's an important role <laughs> <laughs> because people get pretty serious about this important job, and they should. But uh, the one thing that's happened on that, on that Voxer group is a lot of really cool relationships have developed. And when those relationships developed, which is all what I'm all about, that, that's when really neat things start to happen. And so um, I was looking through iTunes recently, and I was just, just checking out what are some new K-12 podcasts, and, and uh, Empowering Educators was, was ranked really high. And I said, oh, my gosh, I know Gretchen. She's on our <laughs> boxing group. And so that's how it happened. Yeah, that's a great job kind of letting everyone know our connection. And I think my whole love for connecting with other educators started first with Twitter, and then I found out about Voxer, and now I'm completely hooked. And I agree, I think you bring just so much flavor, I would say, to the group. Um, It's very easy to get caught up in the very serious side of education, as you were mentioning. So being able to let our hair down and show our real selves really helps us connect. And I think you do a phenomenal job of that. Hey, I got to ask you something. Yeah. Uh, see, seeing how you enjoy boxers so much, sometimes you go to Twitter and you feel like you're in a straitjacket. You, <laughs> you feel like you can't express yourself. Yeah. And, and sometimes I think also on Twitter, uh, I don't find myself looking through the Twitter feed very often. You know, I, I don't find myself really paying attention to what other people are tweeting as much. I, and that's, this is just a personal thing. I find myself doing that more on Boxer. Yeah, I agree with you. I think I use Twitter just for the chat. So when I know it's time, I log in and I communicate that way. And I do send out regular tweets, but I wouldn't say I'm really communicating throughout the week with anyone unless it's a chat time. But Voxer's always going off and... I'm on the go, and it's with me, so it's much more easy to keep in contact. And it's more of a personal relationship because you get to know yes. these people where Twitter, it's, it's yes, we're all connecting, but it's, I don't know, it's not as intimate, I guess I should say. And, and Twitter, seems, and, I'm, and I'm as guilty as anybody else, Twitter seems more self-promotional. Yeah. It's like you put stuff on here with all these hashtags. I mean, <laughs> Yeah, I agree with you. I agree with you. <laughs> Well, go ahead and update us. What is your current position in the educational field right now? Sure. I'm a, a social studies teacher at the high school level. I teach at a school called Big Walnut, like the tree, like a really big walnut tree. Uh-huh. Big Walnut High School that's just outside of Columbus, Ohio. It's a school of about 1,000 students, and uh, it's, it's a good school, man. I mean, it's, it's not like uh, really all that unique, but it's mine, so I'm, I'm partial to it. Yeah. Um, been teaching for uh, this year 31 for me. Woo! I know, man. It's, it's, it, I, it's funny. I just called the state teacher's retirement system, and, and I said, when can I retire? And they said, uh, last week. Yeah, you are past due for sure. <laughs> so uh, I, I teach social studies. I teach ninth grade students uh, global studies. And I teach 11th and 12th graders a college class through um, a local community college called Columbus State. I do have a master's degree in history, which means I'm an adjunct. Check out my title, Gretchen. I'm a volunteer adjunct, which means Columbus State pays me nothing. (laughs) God, you are a teacher at heart. We love to just get in there and help people learn whether we get paid or not. Listen to that. Well, you know, it, it, and, it, and it's been something I've done for the last three years, and the kids get college credit without an AP test, and it's, it's really fun. What made you get into history and wanting to teach social studies? 
My dad was a uh, college professor for 46 years, little school in eastern Ohio called Muskingum University. Um, but I was not <laughs> a very serious high school student. I was your garden variety, go there for social aspects and sports, uh, slack. <laughs> you know, it's kind of a rebellious thing. My, you know, my dad was a professor, so of course I just couldn't make things easy on the world and just kind of take care of business. And, uh, you know, my, my junior year of high school, I was like, oh, geez, I guess I better get serious about something or else I'm not going to have very many options in the future. Started to apply myself junior, senior year, got into college, went to Muskingum, uh, did very well. Finally, finally, you know, things started to click. And um, I, I, I got into teaching. This, this is a great question you asked. I thought about going to law school because that seemed like a natural progression. I was a history poli-sci major in college. It just seemed like a, a lot of really boring reading. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> and then come in and argue, with, argue about that with some really psychotic people. So, you know, I looked at that and I thought, that just sounds awful. So I went to Ohio State and I got a master's degree in history like a holding pattern, you know, so I could really figure out what I wanted to do. And then I, I went ahead and got a teaching job at a, at a town called Mount Vernon, which is about 40 miles from here. Yeah. Thought I'd maybe do it for a year or two and then do something like grown up, something that pays well. And man, I got in there and it's just like, this is a really awesome lifestyle. I mean, I think I'll do this for a while. And pretty soon, you know, it's a few decades later. And you were mentioning being a student that was kind of disengaged at first. Does that help you? Uh, reach your students better because you've been in their shoes and you understand your mindset at that time? Immensely. <laughs> you know, uh, it's just, it, it's sad sometimes to listen to some of my colleagues when they they just can't understand why these kids don't do the right thing. I mean, yeah. why don't they just do it? It's because they don't really care about that right now. There's other things that are more important to them. And, you know, I mean, I, I hear that frustration a lot out of colleagues, and uh, I don't have that frustration. I, I, I get being distracted by other more exciting things. <laughs> well, I was wondering when you mentioned teaching freshmen, if you find yourself as a mentor in addition to a teacher, because I know that gap from eighth grade to ninth grade can be daunting for some students. So do you find yourself really helping them define themselves or find their place in a, a, a big school like that? Sure. I mean, I have some um, I have some young men in my class that are not even close to five foot. Oh wow! Uh, and and they, and they sit right right beside a girl that's on the volleyball team that's six foot two. Woo! And and I just look at these two and where they are in their you know physical maturation points, and it's like it's just amazing how odd fourteen and fifteen year old kids are. I mean, yeah. some of them just are really far, far along and others are like it's there in fourth grade. But some of the ones that, that are physically really far along are not, are not there from a maturity standpoint. So it's, it's really a neat age. I, I enjoy freshmen. I have, a, geez, I have a lot of them every day. I have over 100 of them every day, so I better like them. Yeah, you better. <laughs> well, what lesson do you feel like you've learned as either a teacher at the adjunct level or working with high school students? Oh, my gosh. Uh, I hope you don't mind me talking a little bit on this one. Go ahead. 
And, and what I'm going to do might surprise you because I first really learned how to do this job in elementary school. Then I learned how to do it as a college student. And then I learned one of the most important lessons of my career the first year in the classroom, or the first week in the classroom, pardon me. So, uh, you know, I was growing up, it was the 1960s, and um, it was a very formal time. You know, I mean, teachers really dressed up. I mean, no female teacher in her right mind would wear slacks to school. It just was totally unacceptable. Right. I mean, students were not allowed to wear jeans. And we're talking about public school. This isn't a private school. So um, I think I had a crush on every teacher I had under the age of 40. <laughs> so I had this teacher, and I, I really thought she was neat. And uh, I, I, don't know, I don't know what grade I was in, probably second or third grade. And I was walking around my little town one day with some of my friends, and I didn't know where she lived, but I turned the corner, and there she was. And she was working in the yard, and it was a warm day, and she was wearing shorts. And I looked at her, and I thought, oh, my gosh, Mrs. So-and-so is not wearing a dress. She's wearing shorts. And I yelled to her, and she said, hey, Jimmy, how you doing? You know, and we, we talked a little bit. And I came in the next Monday, and all of a sudden, her and I had this experience that we had had and all of a sudden she became more approachable it was interesting yeah. and, and i and i could say that as a result of just that very innocent hey mrs so-and-so hey jimmy all of a sudden you know her and i were able to connect on a deeper level i'll never forget that yeah. and then the next experience i had i i was a, a freshman in college in 1979 and <clears throat> I'm a humanities guy, Gretchen. And, but I, I went to a, a liberal arts college, so I had to take a science class. And I was like, oh, geez, I'm really dreading this. And I, and I looked, I asked people, you know, what's the easiest science class you can take? And they said, well, it's probably geology, which we called rocks for jocks. <laughs> so I went to geology class the first day. This is 1979, and things had changed a lot. There were some, you know, from the, early, from the late 60s to the late 70s, I mean, you know, clothing styles in particular, particular professionalism. <laughs> and so I walk into this class, and I'm really dreading the experience. In walks this professor. He's about five foot four. He's got a flannel shirt on. He's got this long beard. Um, he walks up, and the first thing out of his mouth was he said, you know, teaching geology has gotten me into a lot of trouble as a husband. And I'm thinking... Okay, where's this going? <laughs> and he said, for me, he goes, millions of years are nothing more than a blink of an eye. He goes, so it's really hard for me to get excited about being 15 minutes late to meeting my wife. So immediately I was like, oh my gosh, this guy's, this guy's going to be funny. Yeah. And I'll never forget this. By the end of the semester, this class that I dreaded so much became my favorite class. Just because I developed this, this kind of interesting relationship with this quirky geology teacher. Now, Gretchen, I'll bet you and I'll bet your audience has had that experience when they went into a class, they didn't think they'd like it, and they met this really cool teacher, and all of a sudden the, the course just came to life for them. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And then the last experience was, now I'm the teacher. It's my first week. And, you know, I'm 24 years old. I'm absolutely loaded with testosterone and certainty and... 
you know, I got I got the world figured out, and I'm teaching social studies, and I don't even remember what the controversial subject was, but I, for some odd reason, felt compelled to give my students my opinion on this controversial subject. Oh Lord! <laughs> and uh, I would say that probably. 85 to 90 percent of that student population was thoroughly on board. You know, go, Mr. Sturdivant, we're with you. Um, and the class concluded, and, and I, I felt really good about myself. And I had a young woman come up, and, you know, geez, she was 18 then, probably closing on 50 now, which blows me away. She walks up and she says, Mr. Sturdivant, I don't agree with you, and you need to be careful uh, promoting your views too much to your students. Well, you know, I, I felt compelled again to hash through all the reasons why I thought it was right. She leaves, and Gretchen, within five seconds, it just sunk in that that young lady was absolutely right, and I was absolutely wrong to do that. Yeah. And, and, and from that point on, fortunately, it happened very early in my career. I'm very, very careful about taking my ego out of things, not promoting my views. The goal is to, you know help them think, not to indoctrinate. And when she came in the next day, boy, I really made over her. I, I, I told her what a hero she was of mine. Yeah. <laughs> and I agree. I think, you know, I've always said education is about communication and relationships. And it sounds like that's exactly what you're saying in all of your stories is you need to connect personally with students to inspire them, to allow the material to see how it fits into their world. And then knowing where that balance is of not, like you were saying, sharing your viewpoint. For me, it was sarcasm. I had to learn oh. that doesn't really fit sometimes. Um, and so that was a hard lesson. But, yeah, I 100% think those are great lessons. And uh, I can definitely say as a student and as a teacher that relationships are really what I remember most at the end of my journey. And I think that, that if more teachers can use the content as a way to communicate, but then use their personality as the vessel to do that, I think everyone's going to be much more successful. Could I throw in something about sarcasm? Yeah, please do. The etymology, I think I'm saying that right. That's like the origins of words. Yeah. Sarcasm is sarcosmos, which means slicing of the flesh. Ooh, ouch. (laughs) In ancient Greece. (laughs) And I was in this colleague's class one time, and... uh, this kid, you know, didn't have his homework assignment. Typical scenario. And instead of asking, you know, the young person, hey, what happened? Or why don't you have it? Or how can I help? Uh, you know, the, when, when the teacher asked why, the student said I was too busy texting my girlfriend. Gave, gave a sarcastic response back. And then the teacher then responded in kind. Well, that's really going to prepare us for the global marketplace. And then I thought to myself, okay, you just create this confrontation now, yeah. you know, there's this back and forth, and, and the kids are better at it than the teachers are. But, but the worst thing about sarcasm is that teacher probably reinforced a lot of insecurities the kid already had about themselves. Yeah. They're, they're, probably, they're, they're probably thinking, you know, I guess it's true, maybe I am irresponsible, or maybe I am stupid. And, you know, take away the cocky exterior, I, I don't think that's a smart thing to do. Yeah, and it's almost unintentional. I mean, that isn't the reason you responded that way or your motivation for sharing, but at the end of the day, that is 
what ends up happening to them. And it's a missed opportunity to affect a child in the most positive way. And I think no one is a bad teacher for making a choice like you and I have where you realize, oops, that probably wasn't the best, but it's how you handle it afterwards. And you mentioned going up to that student and reconnecting and yeah. you know, starting fresh is definitely the way to help that relationship grow. And then that lets them know people aren't perfect. They're going to make mistakes and it's up to me to be able to be forgiving or open to hear what they have to say. So it ended up being a valuable lesson for probably both of you guys. Well, and, and, and you know, I don't want to come off like I haven't done it. <laughs> you know, in 31 years, you let some things slip. But I always try to use it as, like you said, a teachable moment. And said, whoa, I just gave you a sarcastic response. Let me tell you why that's a bad idea. Well, we've been mentioning communication and relationships, but what else makes an educator great? Um, you know, I think what an educator needs to do is to try to build confidence in students. I think that, that needs to be one of their primary goals. Because as, as a student of history, I have seen time and time again how people who have confidence can do amazing things that they're probably not capable of doing. So my big thing is to build confidence in my students, and then once that confidence is there, then, then the inspiration falls right after that. And, and so I, I love it when I hear a student say, I didn't think I could do this, or I thought that this test was going to be really hard, and I mastered it. Because I, I've done some things in my life that I didn't think I could do. And so my mantra, my guiding principle is to build confidence in my students. And how do you think you do that? Is it just words of affirmation, or is it some teaching technique you use? Fill us in on, on how you build confidence. Mm -hmm. Well, I think what you have to do is you have to take away anxiety in most cases. I mean, most kids are scared to death of failing, and, and that's where that personal relationship comes in. That's where you, you mentor kids who are anxious one-on-one, -on -one, and you just take things step at a time and, and say, we're going to master this, then we're going to master this, then we're going to master this. I teach this college class to high school kids. They're scared to death. Um, they're scared to death to do an essay test, to write a term paper, to uh, participate in a Socratic circle. And so when I see those anxieties, I'm going to try to erase those anxieties and then build the confidence, and then the inspiration follows. Yeah, and I think I hope, really, that, I hope that's a good answer. Yeah, no, I think anxiety is because they've never done it or – no one's ever showed them how to take a large task and break it up into smaller steps. So you mentioned writing an essay. You don't just sit down and write 10 pages. I mean, it's a process of planning and chunking your text into giving your message. And so I think when they start seeing the bite-sized chunks, they're like, oh, you know, I can do this. I don't need to go out and run five miles. I can start yeah. with a few short steps. Um, and so I like that. You know, building confidence starts with releasing that anxiety. And Gretchen, I, I think the one thing that, again, my slacker past uh, gives me a leg up on is you have to understand that fear of looking stupid. Yeah. And I think a lot of kids carry that with them. Well, if you make it a safe place and everyone yeah. fails trying or taking risks, then it's not <laughs> such a big deal when it happens, you know. Um, yeah. That could be a whole other show there, though. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but as you know, this show is really dedicated to teachers of a variety of backgrounds. We've got new teachers, teachers in transition or situations of distress, and then we've got our teacher leaders. So if you could give any one of these types of teachers a piece of advice, what would it be and why? 
I want to work with the stressed ones. Okay, all right. Because <laughs> I was a stressed one at certain times in my career. I, I remember I had a class of kids. Uh, I'm a white dude. Uh, most of them were African-American. Uh, they were almost all poor. It was an urban district. Uh, and um, I was determined to have a relationship with them. But I didn't appreciate the fact that I was as alien to them as they were to me. You know, here I was, this little white dude with a master's degree in, in history from Ohio State who was all gung-ho about my subject matter. And, you know, in retrospect, I, I just came on way too strong. And, and then these kids wanted nothing to do with me. And as a matter of fact, they would, not only were they cold, but they would, like, undermine a lot of things I tried to do in class. And I remember, Gretchen, that was a long month of September. Yeah. And I was just like, I, I'm not reaching these kids, you know. Everything I tried with kids in the past wasn't working with them. And uh, they came in one uh, dreary Monday morning, and they were talking. I had them working in groups on something, but they were just yakking about their weekends. And, and I was very frustrated, and I was close to redirecting them. But something in me told me to just shut up and stealth, in a stealth fashion listen to some of their conversations. And what came next was a, was a real eye-opener for me. A lot of their home lives were just chaotic. You know, a lot of the adults in their lives were making bad decisions. And it was such a eureka moment because I was like, okay, here I am, the adult. I'm trying to work my way into these kids' lives. It's it's a rational act on their part to be standoffish. You know, it's a rational act to take a wait-and-see attitude when it comes to this new teacher, myself. And from that point, I decided to take all the interactions I had with these kids and approach them almost like a removed observer. Just pull my ego out of the situation. And it became like this interesting game where some kid would say something obnoxious to me or whatever, and, and instead of reacting, I would accept uh, what was taking place and try to analyze, I wonder where that came from, man. You know, why that kid react that way? And... Um, what I found is that a lot of times your students are mirror images of you. Oh, yes. Like if you're uptight, they're uptight. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're confrontational, they're confrontational. If you're stressed, they're stressed. And, and I just took a deep breath. I, I'm not saying you give up your boundaries or your rules or whatever. But if you can just, if you can just take a deep breath and relax some, you'll, you'll start to have some success with these kids. Now, one thing that happened was... Right after I had my eureka moment, a couple of days later, we were talking about civil rights. Because we talked about civil rights a lot in that class. And I asked the question, who was the first African-American baseball player to make it in the major leagues in 1947? Gretchen, these kids had heard this answer since they were five years old. They all knew the answer. They all knew Jackie Robinson. Right, right. Some kid puts up his hand and says, that'd be Adolf Hitler, you know? Oh, Lord. Everybody in the room just breaks up laughing. Yeah. And, you know, before I had my Eureka experience, I probably would have been frustrated by that. Mm -hmm. But for some odd reason, in my mind's eye, I just pictured Adolf Hitler in a Brooklyn Dodgers baseball uniform. <laughs> that would be awful. Oh, God. <laughs> and I, I broke up laughing. And I'll never forget the looks on their faces. They were like, uh, wow, uptight Mr. Sturdivant's laughing for a change. Yeah. And from that moment forward, we're all kind of laughing at the same thing for the first time. I, I just relax some. I stopped coming on too strong. And the key word here, this is the word that I want to lay on your audience, is you 
have to accept your students exactly where they are. And that is so hard for most people to do. Uh, When people are different, they get frustrated. And so once I started to accept my kids exactly where they were, everything became easier. That's good. And within just a few months, I was pretty cordial with those kids. By the end of the the school year, I I really had a very strong bond with those kids. That's my proudest uh, moment in, in education. And I learned it the hard way. I learned it through the mistakes I made. Yeah, I agree. I think I wanted to come off strong because I was, you know, a brand new teacher. I wanted them to think I'd been teaching forever. I knew the answer to every question they'd have. And so you do come in very formal and uptight and you don't want to break the seriousness of the classroom because that gets scary. That means it's a moment where things could get out of control. And do I have the management style to get it back versus just allowing it to happen? And I think you realized just like I did that, it's better and more effective to really connect by being yourself. You know, right. have that content knowledge, but you, you don't need to be up there like the expert and better than everyone else because you're never going to get through to them, which is the whole point of being a teacher. And then let me go just a little further. Uh, the one thing you have that you can control in those situations, I'm not telling you anything revolutionary here, but is your, you have control over your own actions, obviously. So what you can do if you have a really tough class that's really hard to connect with is you can work on your approachability. And a great way to do that is just tell some basic stories about yourself. Just, just, just simple things about like what you did over the weekend or, or you know, what movie you saw or what restaurant you went to. Um, I had a tough class a couple years ago and our custodian at my school, his wife owns a dog grooming salon. And he and I like to talk, you know, and he knew I had a new dog. And so he said, you have to take, her, you have to take him to my wife's dog grooming salon. So I took my dog there. I snapped pictures of my dog on the way. I snapped pictures of the dogs in the uh, shop. I, I showed a picture of my dog, like, getting suspended in midair, getting his toenails turned. He's a pug dachshund, so he's a really funny-looking dog. I come in Monday, and I just I, I do this all the time, Gretchen. I just, like, put up a couple things about what happened to me on the weekend. I put that thing up there. This girl who had never said a word all year walks up to me after class and with a trembling hand goes, Mr. Sterling, let me show you a picture of my dog. And all of a sudden I developed a, a, a bond with that student because I became approachable to her. Yeah. And it was just because I told this stupid little story. There was no like magic involved at all. And so uh, I'd say if you know the, the teachers that are struggling – They need to accept their students, and they need to work on their approachability. Those are two things that are totally in that teacher's control. I mean, the kids are acting out and doing whatever. You know, your your control over that's limited, but your control over those two things is, is solid. Excellent advice. Well, since you are just so knowledgeable and wise, you've been in the classroom decades, and I think that is encouraging to others who are just starting off. But who is your current mentor, and how do you keep learning even though you've kind of been there, done that. Well, thanks for saying those things. I, I sound like a great guy, man. <laughs> I'll tell you who my current uh, mentors are, are young teachers like yourself. Because, uh, you know, I, I mean, I, I, you're so knowledgeable. I mean, you, you have this technology stuff down. You have this, the, the, the best pedagogy, pedagogical practices down. You guys got it. I mean, you guys are very impressive. I'm very impressive with young teachers. 
But here's the thing that young teachers have, particularly like first-year teachers. They just have this wonderful joy about them. And when I'm around those young teachers, it, it, it really um, inspires me. And I think that's a great message to let everyone know. You don't need to have years of experience to <laughs> give back and contribute. I always say, you know, I want you to sit next to someone that's opposite. Oh, if you have a lot of years of experience in the classroom, sit next to a newbie. Because you both have great uh, experience and perspectives yeah. to swap. And it really challenges you both to see things in a new way and, and encourages each other to try new things. Um, so I think that's great. And a mentor doesn't have to be like a specific person. It could be a type of person. And you mentioned that newer educators is where you challenge yourself to try huh. new things. Yeah, that's right. So that's what, a good question. I like that question. <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, what current project are you working on and what's its impact on our field here? Well, um, I hope you don't mind a little story. <laughs> no, go ahead. Uh, you know, I, I have enjoyed having student teachers before. And I had this young guy come up uh, about five years ago. Uh, Otterbein University is a small liberal arts college about 10 miles down the road from Sunbury. So they set up this, this football player. <laughs> and he was like this really good-looking guy. So, you know, uh, he comes walking in the first day. Automatically, every female in my class were like, whoa, man, this is a massive upgrade from Mr. Sturdivant. <laughs> <laughs> And, like, I had a lot of athletes in class, and they were drawn to this guy. But, but there was a handful of students, I could just tell by their body language, that were looking at Charlie and thinking, oh, gosh, we have another jock social studies teacher. You know, that, that's where they hide all the coaches. No one's serious about this subject. And I could tell that they were really going to give him the cold shoulder. Right. So I pulled him aside the first day, and I pointed this out to him. And I said, you know, we can talk pedagogy and content. That's pretty easy. Tough thing is going to be to bond with those kids that are standoffish that, that aren't going to give you a chance. Now, he's a pretty together person. So he's like, game on, man. Let's see if we can win him over. So you probably remember this. A few weeks later, his, his professor comes up to observe. <laughs> that that nerve-wracking first time teaching in front of your professor, and, and he did a great job. And I was sitting at my desk, and I was watching him, but I was also watching her. And I could tell that she was looking around the room, and she was nodding a lot. So the class concludes. She comes up to me, and she goes, uh, and this sounds self-promotional. I apologize for this. She goes, um, man, I like the classroom culture I see in this room. Boy, I'm really impressed with the atmosphere in this room. How'd you create it? Now, I consider myself someone who's able to string words together to form coherent sentences. I just sat there sputtering for like five minutes. <laughs> I had no idea how to answer this rational question. So, you know, fortunately she took pity on me and changed the subject. She leaves, and then, like, I'm thinking, why in, why in the hell can't I answer that question? That's, that's, a, that's a logical question. I went down to Otterbein that summer and did an independent study with one of their professors called Diane Ross. Not Diana Ross, but Diane Ross. <laughs> And we, we struggled with that question. We wrestled with that question. And over the summer, we talked, we bantered, we, we joked, we laughed. And at the end of the um, summer, she goes, Jim, this is really good. Turn it into a publisher, which is what I did. And my book is called You've Got to Connect, which is to help teachers form this bond with students. Awesome. Now, uh, it's kind of interesting. I've been through 31 years of professional development, a lot of it 
boring. <laughs> but you know, there's been some things I've grown from. But I was making a list. I've been I've been in service on differentiation rubrics, summative assessments, formative assessments, think pair share, self-directed learning, professional learning communities, creation of teacher websites, bring your own technology, flip classroom, essential questions, and of course, project-based learning. I've learned about all that stuff. I can't remember one time uh, an administrator standing up in front of my colleagues and I saying, you know, today we're going to work on building stronger relationships with our students. And it isn't that interesting. So my book was, was geared to fill that void, give teachers how-to, ways to help build those relationships. And you look at the research, like John Hattie, for instance, the, you know, the, the guy from New Zealand that's so popular. I mean... Teacher-student relationships are so much higher than a lot of things that we think are, are, are more important. I know, right? So, so that's what I'm all about. I'm all about you know, hel- helping uh, other fellow comrades in arms bond with these kids. Where can we find that book? Oh, it's on Amazon. It's called You've Got to Connect, and it's just like the contraction you have. Mm-hmm. And got is spelled G-O-T-T-A, connect. And it's funny because, you know, Gretchen, five years ago I was looking at um, you know how much longer I had to go in teaching and you know, things have been going great and I could kind of just go on cruise control <laughs> to yeah. the finish line and, and then all of a sudden I wrote this book and it's, it's just exposed me to so many neat people like yourself and I mean no one writes an education book to make much money because you aren't going to right. it, it's like to help others and to develop relationships outside of where you live well, I think what you're saying is a simple truth. You go in thinking to be a fabulous educator, you need to attend all these professional development sessions, and you named a bunch of them, and you need to have taught decades and won lots of awards, but really at the end of the day, it's connections with your coworkers, with your parents, with the students. Um, that's really what education is all about, and I think your Simple Truth book is really going to be powerful for anyone entering the workforce or who's already in there. So thank you. And thank you. And, and you know, I'm going back to that one statement I made earlier in the program when I talked about my experience of walking in a class that I dreaded, that I didn't want to be there, and all of a sudden I met this really cool teacher, and he empowered me to have success in that class. That, that's, that's what it's all about. Well, you are certainly a lifelong learner. I can hear it in just everything you're sharing today. But staying current in what's happening in our field is important. I know you were mentioning learning about certain things. It could be through professional development sessions or chatting with other teachers. But how do you keep current on what's happening? Uh, you've heard, I, I don't really like cliches much, but I'm going to lay one on you. <laughs> Necessity is the mother of invention. So that, that's certainly true in my case. In the college, the dual enrollment—excuse me—the dual enrollment class I teach, Columbus State came to me and they were fussed about the fact that I was teaching five days a week. Where on campus they teach the class three days a week, so they said we need you to teach this class just three days a week. Which you know, someone might look at that and say, "Oh wow," then you get two days off. But I looked at that and said, "Oh, how in the world am I going to get kids through the material?" So. Uh, what I've done is I've learned how to flip my entire class. So, you know, every presentation I do is on YouTube. And I was really concerned about that at first. Uh, What happened was 
kids came to me after watching these and said, you know, we, we think that you're a, a good presenter, but we love your YouTube videos. And I'm like, you're kidding me. I'm like, no, no, man, we can, it's what we understand. It's the way we uh, absorb information. We watch them at three in the morning. If we get tired, we take a break. Yep. You know, we're, we're watching TV while we're, we're watching you. We're texting a friend. Right? And, and, and I was just amazed by that. And I was in a, in a very positive way. And what's more is uh, what the flipped uh, lesson taught me was that I do a better job on a YouTube video than I do in front of the kids, which might seem odd for me to admit. And, and, and here's my theory on why that's the case. When I'm presenting, I'm looking around. Is, is this kid with me? You know, they seem distracted. Okay, I need to hurry up before the bell rings. There's all these variables that are flying into my head while I'm trying to give this engaging presentation. Yeah, so when I do the YouTube uh, video, uh, I just kind of relax and, and, and speak in a very slow, measured tone, and my kids have been so complimentary of it. I was not anticipating that. That's awesome. And then the other thing I've done is uh, become very adept at Google Classroom, which I think is really neat. <laughs> and then uh, uh, my students blog, and it's it's... Really cool. It does what the internet does best. It just wipes out distances. And how do you think you've been inspired to try these things? I mean, where are you getting your ideas from to stay current? Uh, just panic in general. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, panic and uh, I don't know. I, I, I like to think I'm an open-minded guy. Yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> so I just research things and then try them out. What the heck? If they don't work, so what? Yeah, I think that's exactly how it ends up happening. And I was thinking back to an article I read, and I wish I could cite it, but I don't remember where I read it. It was about high school students and how they are just not ready to learn at 7 in the morning, but how changing their schedules would throw off sports and what have you. But you mentioned a good point that 3 a.m. might be the prime time that someone wants to learn something. And so I was listening to Jennifer Gonzalez's recent podcast, uh, Cult of Pedagogy podcast, and it was about the same thing you were mentioning about the flipped classroom, but she was specifically honing in on a teacher that did self-paced learning. So just like you were mentioning with your videos, Mm -hmm. and students can go through it as they wish. You know, when you're in class, that's your time to collaborate, but when it's time to gain that knowledge, hey, do it on your own time whenever you want. Stop the video if you need. And so that might be the future. And if that is, guess who is leading the movement? You. <laughs> well, I have, to say, I have to tell you something about Jennifer Gonzalez. Uh, last week, we had a Socratic circle in my class. Uh-huh. And it was more like a Socratic crescent because we formed a big C. Uh-huh. And I put the computer monitor on my desk, and Jennifer Gonzalez participated via Skype. That's pretty cool. Oh, that is awesome. Yeah. Very cool. Well, I know you've mentioned and highlighted a lot of cool stories that you've learned and tried over the years, but is there just one best all-star teacher moment you want to share with the audience? Yeah, it's kind of strange. Um, When I called down to the state teacher's retirement system and found out that I could retire, my immediate reaction was, I don't want to do that. That surprised me. (laughs) Because, you know, when I was 40-something, I thought, oh, geez, man, wouldn't it be cool to just kind of, you know, drift on out to pasture and do whatever the heck I want with my day? And, and now that it's staring me right in the face, I don't want to leave. Mm-hmm. Now, that's not really some miraculous story about how I, you know, conquered ignorance in the classroom, but that's just a really 
interesting revelation about what this profession means to me. Yeah, and I think it's real. You don't need yeah. a huge aha moment or some major impact. It could be just in the everyday nuts and bolts of being a teacher. And I think that's great that you're able to share that with us. It's also nice to know that if I get mad, I can walk out the door. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. That is so true. <laughs> well, James, I want to be respectful of your time. So before I let you go, I want to ask you one more question. Sure. How do you reignite your passion and potential as an educator? Oh, boy. You know, um, oh, geez. I, I, I think... Okay, I got a great question. I got a great response for you. Okay. One of the biggest problems, you talked about sarcasm, I talked about lack of acceptance, I talked about um, your ego. One of the biggest barriers between you and your students is just pure, simple nostalgia. This concept that things were better when you were a young person. Yep. I hear teachers say it all the time. So I'm going to leave you with a quote okay. about nostalgia. I see no hope for the future of our people if they're dependent on the frivolous youth of today. For certainly all youth are reckless beyond words. When I was a boy, we were taught to be discreet and respectful of elders. But the present youth are exceedingly wise and impatient of restraint. Now that certainly seems like a contemporary uh, complaint about young people. This comes from Hesiod, the poet of ancient Greece writing in 700 BCE. It's 200 years prior to Athens' golden age. So whenever I need a boost, I read that quote, and I realize everything's going to be fine. Absolutely. Well, on behalf of elite educators everywhere, James, thank you so much for your time today. Oh, my pleasure. I, I really enjoyed talking on, on podcasts. Yeah, well, tell us where we can connect with you to learn more. Sure. Uh, my website is uh, jamesallensturdivant.com, and Allen's spelled kind of strange. It's A-L-A-N, and Sturdivant's a nightmare. It's spelled, <laughs> uh, I'm going to give you the NATO alphabet. <laughs> S is in Sam, T is in Tango, U, I don't know what U is in the NATO alphabet. R is in Romeo, T is in Tango, E is in Echo, V is in Victor, A-N-T. Uh, JamesAllenSturdivant.com. That, that took me way too long to do that. I <laughs> That's okay. And then, uh, and then my, uh, you know, my Twitter handle is uh, at James Sturdivant. And um, I, I also have a, a email address. It's P as in uh, Papa and J as in, I don't know, Jelly Sturdivant uh, at gmail.com. And I really love interacting with people. I promise anyone that if they email me, I'll email them back. Well, and you're so hilarious that, I mean, I'm sure anyone listening is just dying to just have a conversation with you about, doesn't even matter, but they just want to have a good time and you definitely supply that. But you heard it, Elite Educators, start connecting with James today. Thank you so much and we'll chat again soon. I hope. All right, bye-bye. Wow, what an empowering message from James Man, he certainly helped remind us what education is all about. And even after three decades in the classroom, he is still keeping it fresh, 
being a lifelong learner and connecting with not only his students, but staff and everyone out in social media land as educators. So make sure you check out the show notes page for details on how to connect with James Sturdivant. All right, elite educators, that is a wrap for this week's special edition interview podcast with James Sturdivant. Now go out and be great because you've just been empowered. This podcast is sponsored by the Educators Podcast Network, a podcast network that encourages you to think about your profession and succeed in the world of education. Whether you're a first-year educator or a seasoned veteran, there is a podcast for you. All of the shows are produced by educators who want to shape education through meaningful discussion and content. So head on over to edupodcastnetwork.com for more details. Hi, elite educators. You don't want to miss out on the Always a Lesson monthly newsletter, and here's why. I give you fresh, free content to remain effective in the classroom, as well as share some fabulous freebie resources. This engaging one-pager comes right to your inbox at the beginning of each month. Snag a spot today by visiting Always a Lesson on Facebook and clicking on the Sign Up button on the page's cover photo. Get ready to be empowered. Calling elite educators. Are you in need of feeling empowered by someone who is just like you, who does just what you do, and, well, just gets it? Then hop on over to alwaysalesson.com to learn more on the blog for tips and tricks of remaining passionate about your current work. Also, check out our social media links for more personal connection to other elite educators just like you. And if you're a newbie educator, grab a copy of my book, Elementary Education 101, What They Didn't Teach You in College, to ensure you beat the learning curve and end your first year ahead of the game. Alwaysalesson.com provides something for everyone. So elite educators, stop by today and get empowered.